Right, I said I didn't know that, but I think we do. Uh, I think Jane and I got picked that one up at Vineyard in, in uh, Milton Keynes when we were visiting our daughter. So that's a lovely song. Isn't it it's quite interesting that there was a slight section there whereas the singers, we hit uncertain territory, so it faded. And then all of a sudden, when you found that solid ground, it just erupted. And that's maybe a little bit how we should be looking at Christ this morning. Yes, as we go out and about, we're going to be on a bit of shaky ground. We're going to be unsure of ourselves. But we have an anchor in Christ that we need to be sure about. That's us on solid ground. Okay, may the Lord protect you guys this morning as I bring what I believe to be his word. If not, I'm sure somebody will shoot me afterwards. But gently. Here we are in the Gospel of Mark. I want you to picture the scene. A large crowd had gathered yet again. It's getting common. Jesus, wherever he goes, for whatever reason, people come out. And they come out in such a fanatical way. You know, they don't stop and do the picnic lunch. Everything goes to the side. They just want to be there because this guy is billed as a phenomenal speaker, a worker of great things, miracles. And that's why you had 4,000 men plus other appendages, young and old, who gathered there without food. They were the ones who were prepared to walk to Glastonbury. They were the ones who were prepared to climb the tor and to sit there with no sustenance for three days, hanging, listening to every word. Now, sometimes, I was sharing with uh, uh, Adrian earlier, I, I started doing a lot of walking, and I walk first thing in the morning before breakfast, so I try to do four miles. And sometimes, when I go out and get 100 yards down the hill, I start to tremble and feel weak. Now, I, a couple of years back, I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, so that's obviously something to do with sugar levels. Think about the people who were on that hillside for the three days. If I feel weak after 100 yards, they must have been flopped out. And yet, Jesus had them transfixed. Now that's a superb illustration of the desire, the hunger to learn. Now, we then come to an act of compassion because even Jesus eventually sees that they're hungry. Jesus felt for the crowd. They were there concentrating on his every word and for so long, and they must have been absolutely famished. What happens when you get really hungry? How do you know you're hungry? Can you tell me? Does she? Oh, that's not what I was expecting. (laughs) Does anybody have any other symptom when you feel hungry? Yes. 
Your belly rumbles. Now you think, you think of 4,000 plus people, three days without food, do you think they even heard Jesus speaking? Rumbles. I mean, maybe that's shaking the mountains. Wow. So Jesus is saying, look, you know, they've been here three days. You know, they'll never make it home. They're famished. And he looks at his faithful disciples. He said, come on, guys. You've been with me for now quite some time. You're learning what we're going to do. And the disciples have big question marks over their heads saying, where can we get enough food or bread in this desolate place? Now, there's another word, desolate. So you weren't talking about having a a, a grand open-air meeting at the local park. They were in a desolate place. Verse 3 says about sending them home famished. And then the disciples saying, where can we get the food? So they are even listening to Jesus in the comfort of, of, of comfortable surroundings. It's desolate. It's out of the way. From ordinary, everyday human perspective, it's a straightforward question. I mean, if you don't have food in your pockets, on your bag, you say, okay, Lord, where do we get the food? I mean, that, that's what we do. Because we look on the surface. We see what's around us. We can appreciate the beauty but we still have the inability, like the disciples, to see below, to see the depth. So Jesus has to give them the answer. But he answers the question with a question. How many loaves? Seven. So Jesus does what comes to him naturally. He blesses the loaves and even blesses the few fish and he feeds the crowd. They were filled and satisfied. 4,000 plus people are filled and satisfied. Where have we had that before? Anybody tell me? Where have we had that before? This is a repeat, isn't it? This is a, a sort of rinse and repeat job. Only a chapter before, he did an even bigger job. He fed how many? 5,000 people. How how many? Okay, here's a silly question. How many is 5,000 people? That's obvious. It's 5,000 people. But how do you quantify that? If you had 5,000 people, how many people can you get in here this morning? What's the capacity? About 50. So how many... So that's about 100, is that right? 100 times 50? Is that, is that my mathematics right? So if you had 5,000 people wanting to come in here this morning, apart from being absolutely ecstatic, what would you do? Is there a place around here where we could all just go out? No? The field. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where maybe they were, a desolate place. 5,000 people and yet they were all satisfied with a few loaves and a few wee fish. And yet, the disciples still hadn't learned. They were still approaching the question, how? How can we do this? We don't have anything. They had forgotten who they were with. 
And then we have the Pharisees and Herod. They come to Jesus and demand a sign. It's a bit like going to a magician and saying, show us a sign. I like the way they say, show us a sign, make something disappear. The two don't go together. But Jesus is blunt. He doesn't mince his words. Why does this generation need a sign? No sign will be given. And he leaves them there and goes to the other side in the boat. I think this is amazing. He takes the disciples, the ever faithful disciples who have been with him, learning with him, working with him, feeding upon him. And would you believe it? These amazing saints of God forget to take the food. You know? We put disciples, we put them on a pedestal, and yet they were ordinary, everyday people who forget things. Okay, come on. Who forgets things? Yeah. yeah. This morning, I, I live by tea. I'm an Earl Grey tea freak, okay? Earl Grey or good coffee. I will have a pot of Earl Grey tea to myself first thing in the morning. I will possibly have a cafeteria of coffee at half past ten-ish, eleven o'clock. I'll have a pot of Earl Grey tea in the afternoon and sometimes one in the evening. So I like my tea. This morning, I was relaxed in the chair. I had my porridge and I poured out my cup of Earl Grey and I'm just contemplating the drive here. And the tea, the taste this morning was oh so delicate. It's my teapot. It's there. I never clean it. It is stained. It's the flavor. And this morning, that flavor was oh so delicate. And do you know why it was oh so delicate? Because I forgot to put the tea leaves in. Yeah, laugh at me. Yes, mock, mock the afflicted. Who also here has ever forgotten to put the tea leaves in? Come on. Yes, oh, welcome to my world. We are fallible. We forget things. They'd forgotten to take the bread. Now, what I want to do here, here is a question. Jesus knows the disciples' hearts. He knows what they're thinking here and here. He knows them better than they know themselves. And he tells them to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod. It's the yeast that causes bread to rise, and he's telling them to beware and make sure that they use the right yeast, because the wrong yeast can make it go bad. The Pharisees are demanding signs. What's the worst here? Is it that the Pharisees who are demanding signs... Or is it worse that the disciples who have lived and worked with this miracle-producing Jesus still don't trust him? Who's the guiltiest, the terrible Pharisees or the disciples who still lack trust? Frankly, at this time, at this point in the story, I'm getting worried about the disciples I mean, we haven't had that experience of being able to walk with Jesus in the flesh. They're there with him. And yet they still haven't clocked the awesomeness, the authority, 
of Jesus. And Jesus takes them to task. He doesn't just uh, have a go at the Pharisees. He's taking the disciples to task. He's saying, have your hearts hardened? They're showing a, a distinct lack of faith. And verse 18 is very true. They have eyes, but don't see. They have ears, but don't listen. Jesus reminds them of the feeding of the five thousands. How many baskets were left over? Can anybody remember feeding of the five thousand? Twelve. A student. Yes, twelve baskets. How many baskets after the feeding of the four thousand? Seven. See, terror. It comes in there all quickly answering. It's good. I love it. Seven. To me, that's the crux of both events. In some respects, we get stuck on the fact that he fed 5,000. He fed 4,000. That's good in its own right. But the fact that after feeding all of these people with so little, so much was gathered up that wasn't needed. The crumbs. You could have fed a nation on what was left over. Do you understand yet? Their eyes and understanding still hadn't taken on board the immensity of Christ. I remember a few weeks back when a a young pastor, Shayla, was preaching. She shared, Jesus didn't just come to make us better people. If he had, he would have done a good job. But we can do that. We can encourage each other. We can mentor these lovely young folks. We can encourage them in the right direction, give them words of wisdom, because as we're getting older, you know, when when you get to Adrian's age, you build up a lot of wisdom. (laughs) He's not going to feed me now. Uh, You know, that's experience of life, experience of life. But Jesus didn't come to deal with, with the surface, just with the experience of life. Jesus came to deal with what was below, what was behind all of this. Jesus came for the soul. He came to bring healing to the soul of men and women. Jesus was digging deep, going deeper. By healing the soul, it's the very core of our existence. By doing that, he allows us to look at life with different eyes. We will see things so much differently. I remember, I've probably shared this before many years ago, when I lived in Bristol, I I was cycling to work every day. And I remember cycling cycling uphill from the feeder to Staple Hill. And I'm giving it stink. The sweat is splashing off of me, and I'm looking at the top of my glasses, and I'm going around here, St. George's Park, and I see something in the distance, and as I get closer, that something is a body lying partly on the road, partly on the pavement. What do you do? You start a a, a discussion with yourself. You're in turmoil. Do I stop? Is Is he dead? Is he alive? Oh, it's just a drunk. You know, keep... 
To my shame, I kept going. I thought about it all the way home, but I kept going. I didn't even think, what would Jesus do? And yet there I was, a young evangelical Christian. And that thing bugs me. It's bugged me all my life. I, I don't know whether that person was dead, it was an accident or whatever else. But Jesus, if we trust in Jesus, we will see circumstances differently. And that will change our lives. Because we have an intimate relationship with Jesus. We can appreciate what's happening around us through His eyes, through His heart. And today, if I'm right, today is it's Ascension, isn't it? Yeah, Ascension Sunday. Is that right, Jane? There you are. Ascension Sunday, the time when Jesus said, okay, guys, I'm going. And why is that important? Because at the end of Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel as well, he says to his disciples, I'm going, but I'm leaving you. From now on, you are the body of Christ. You are the hands of Christ. The hands that can hold somebody and greet them in love. The hands and the arms that can go around somebody's shoulder in a time of distress to comfort them. You are the eyes of Christ to be aware of what's going on around you. We men always joke about uh, spatial awareness, especially when it comes to women drivers in supermarket car parks. It's just a, one of these things. But we need to look at awareness. We need to be aware in Christ, to be aware of what's happening around. As you're walking, doing a, a shop in the high street, and you see somebody sitting on a bench looking visibly saddened or distressed, are we aware? Is God making you aware? Is that God saying to you, you need to go and sit there and speak? I remember being told of a gentleman uh, who was being encouraged to listen to God's voice. And he was out walking one day, and uh, he had this distinct urge. God was saying to him, you need to go and tell somebody that I love them. You need to tell people of God's love, that Jesus loves them. And this was burning in his heart. He couldn't shake it. It, it, just, it, it almost wanted to explode, but he was scared stiff. He decided to bite the bullet. Now, I don't know whether, as young people, you've ever done something naughty. In Scotland, we used to have a game called Chap Door Run. Loosely translated into English, you went up to a complete stranger's door, you rapped on the door, and ran like the clappers. This guy might have been Scottish because he went up to this door. He didn't hit the door. He threw the letterbox open and shouted, God loves you, and then haired off. He could have got an, Olymp an Olympic gold. Later, he learned that inside that house, there was a person standing on a chair with a noose around their neck. Life had dealt them badly. And as soon as he shouted, God loves you, something happened. The noose was taken off and a life was changed. 
a seemingly stupid act, almost like a vandal at the door, and yet a life was saved. So God is saying that you are the body of Christ. And right now, I can see it in your eyes, because I know I feel it, we feel so insignificant. What can we do? I mean, who are we to do great things for God? And yet his word says that you will do even better things, even greater things than I did. But only if you live in Christ, only if you go out there today in Christ, trusting in him. Because he is the one that can take a little and make it go a long way. I don't care how young how old you are, how clever you are, how silly you are, it doesn't matter. You can do a lot for Christ. He is the one who can take you just like the saffron that that young man spoke about. And you're the one that can be that drop in the pond that sends a a humongous ripple out that affects and changes people for good. You won't just be making people better because you are looking through the eyes of God on those folks with His compassion, with His love. Everyone here can make a difference, a huge difference. It's all about trusting in Christ. Hands up those who feel super spiritual and super strong in their faith. Okay, hands up those who feel as if they struggle to have a a smidgen of faith. Anybody? Yes, yeah, yeah, that's fine. It is not how much faith in Christ you have. That in itself can be insignificant. The importance is that you take that smidgen or that mustard seed of faith and you give it to Christ. Because if you give it to Christ, He can do great things. You remember the story about the, the, is it the wealthy guy in the church who's coming in and giving all his money away and then you've got the little widow with a tiny mite. Huge difference. This morning you've got young people They're mites, and their mites are mighty when they work together with millions of other mites. Sounds good, doesn't it? You can make a difference. Even your one penny going in there means so much to somebody in South America. So don't ever, ever, ever say that your faith isn't good enough, because it is as long as you put it in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you.